Hello and welcome to Talk of the Hound, a podcast from Theater Hound. Theater Hound's a new, unique theater website launching this year, which looks at the art and business of theater from a multitude of angles. I'm your host, Wes Braver, and I'm here to talk to all kinds of people whose work makes theater so compelling today. Today, my guest is Obie Award-winning director Melia Bensussen, the artistic director of Hartford Stage. Last year, she succeeded Darko Tresniak and became the first woman to hold the position in the theater's 55-year history. Over the course of her career, she has directed productions across the country, including at Huntington Theatre Company, Shakespeare and Company, La Jolla Playhouse, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Playwrights Horizons, and many more. My earliest memories of the theatre are, I must have been around four, and I was in Mexico City, and there was, I think it was a Sunday morning, either a Saturday or Sunday morning, children's theatre performances uh, in a park called Chapultepec Park in Mexico City. And I started going as a child and really never looked back. I mean, there was something very immediate about falling in love with the art form and the community around it. Although when I fell in love with it, it was first as an audience member and then, you know, as a kid in the theater classes at this children's theater in, in Mexico City. And I had always, I didn't really understand as you know, really most people, I don't think, understand what a director does. So uh, not surprisingly, I didn't as a child either. And my fantasies of working in the theater were all about acting. And it wasn't until I went to college, really, that I discovered directing through the student theater and realized, oh, this really fits. This is really what I should be doing. And then it took many years to figure out how one actually does this, or not only the craft of it, but also how you build a career in it. You know, neither is straightforward. And, you know, there's, there's no real playbook for either building the career or for how each individual approaches directing. So it's endlessly interesting to me. And probably in part for that reason, that you're always inventing how to do it. Do you remember which, what was your first play that you directed there in college? I do, I do, so vividly. The whole process is so vivid. It was two David Mamet one acts. Hmm. It was my sophomore year in college at, uh, and it, there was something at Brown where I was called Production Workshop, uh, a shout out to PW, which is still there. And so many great theater folks have come out of PW. And I actually, the way I found it was that I knew I wanted to be in rehearsal. That was my impetus to direct. And I went to the theater library we had in the drama building and started looking for plays with only two characters because I thought, well, I've never directed. I don't think I can manage more than two people at a time. And found these two David Mamet one acts called Reunion and Dark Pony. And they're just really wonderful short plays. I did both of them and I proposed it to the student theater board of PW and went on to have those produced and it was just a joy to do it from beginning to end. I remember it so very vividly. So it it was a kind of falling in love with the craft and an understanding how I could find myself in the work. It was very lucky, very, very lucky. So coming out of Brown, how, what is it, the process like for a director? Because I think actors have a sort of process that we sort of know in the theater world of like, all right, you go to auditions now, you try and get your equity card. What is right. that like for a director? So it's changed so much. I graduated college in 1984. There were almost no director programs. I mean, there were, there were grad programs for directors, but other than going to grad school for directing, I didn't know of very, you know, now there's apprenticeships and internships for directors. There really was very, very little then. 
someone recommended to me, a, a dear friend in college who was a playwright, recommended that I apply to the internship at Actors Theatre of Louisville because they did so much new play work and I loved working on new plays and liked working with writers. So I applied for the internship in dramaturgy because they, at that point, ATL did not have directing internships. So I applied for the dramaturgy internship. I didn't get it that year, but I got it the following year. <laughs> there you go, kids. Try again. You oh, it's so true. It's even better. I, I got rejected the first year and then had a, a tremendous year of adventure teaching English in Japan and traveling in China. I mean, I really took off and taught English and lived, you know, by my wits, if you will, and mm-hmm. traveled. But when I got back to the States, Louisville called because their intern for the following year had dropped out. So I didn't actually even reapply, but they had, you know, they had remembered me from the previous year and said, well, if you're not doing anything. So you really don't know, even rejections can lead to door openings, right? It's someone once said, and there are a couple of lines that I live by. And one is you make your life in the theater and you let the career take care of itself. And I think that's really true. I mean, you just keep reaching out. So that's my lecture for the moment. Uh, (laughs) To go back to the story part of this, uh, the internship at ATL was crucial. I learned so much, uh, even though I was, I mean, or especially because I was a dramaturg, through the Humana Festival of New American Plays, I got to sit in these, you know, amazing rehearsal rooms and learn from directors like Mary Robinson and Tom Bullard. Uh, who were both for him at Humana when I was there. And through the connections I made at Humana, I met some folks at the public theater in the Festival Latino office, right? Because I was bilingual. So when I left Louisville at the end of that internship year, I went in to interview at the public theater to be a translator in the box office, to work box office. But in fact, they'd lost an assistant in the Festival Latino office. And I started there and eventually became a dramaturg at the public and eventually a director at the public. So, you know, the, it was all, all of this would not have happened without the support and recommendations of friends and colleagues along the way. This is really a profession built on relationships, and and I've been really lucky on on that front of people saying, "Hey, you know what you'd be good for," or "I recommended you to so and so," and that was that was my first job in New York was working at the Public. So I spent a year in Louisville, and then and then just went to New York, really not having any clue of how I would go about directing. Did you have a particular Like, I know my young director friends are sort of trying to make a niche for themselves. And now it's so codified in, oh, I have my website and what my website has to say and what my bio has to say. I know, you guys, I really feel for your generation. I I don't know if it's easier or harder. It feels, from from my perspective, it feels harder. Um, I left out one piece that was incredibly helpful, which is that while I was in Louisville, Mary Robinson told me about this brand new program called the Drama League Directors Program right? It, it had just, it had had two years, the director's program. It's amazing when you think about how now it's such a stepping stone and right, talk about niche and networking and so forth. Back then, it had had two seasons only of existence. Um, and thanks to Mary Robinson, she recommended me, she told me about it, and I applied. 
and actually got in. So I, when I moved to New York, the first thing I did was actually the Drama League program with my, one of the other directors in my foursome was Mark Brokaw, who's still a friend. So that was really instrumental. That was fall of 86. Hmm. And that was incredibly helpful because I was assisting directors. I didn't get like directing work per se out of it, but it was actually my first time encountering a regional theater for real. And ironically, it was Hartford Stage. I was the assistant director to Emily Mann on a production of A Doll's House at Hartford Stage in the 86-87 season. So, Do you think so, you like formed a, uh, I don't know, a connection with it then that, that you think carries through to now? I do. I do. I mean, I, you know, the serendipity of things. I mean, right. We call coincidence is of course, just what it is. It's happenstance, but the meaning we make out of these connections is so important. And for me, that, that was incredibly meaningful when I was first interviewed for Hartford stage to be able to say, this was my first professional job really was assisting Emily Mann here. And I, you know, I had no idea. It's hard to describe to you young people. I don't mean to make myself to be the grand old dom, but it is really interesting to encounter this profession without the internet, right? You you really don't, I did not have that much of a sense of how the career worked, of what was happening in different theaters. I mean, I was very, I was quite naive really. And so moved to New York joined the Drama League, and these were just extraordinary experiences for me, as uh, working at the public and meeting the folks that just came through the office. I was a lowly assistant, but I got to read plays by extraordinary writers and just crash rehearsals. I would sneak into the back of theaters and watch whatever was in rehearsal. The privilege of just being in rehearsal rooms and being in New York that carried me for years. I, I just felt so fortunate to be breathing the air of of all these great theater makers. So it doesn't sound like you ever had a sort of, at least from this narrative of it, but if you did, I'm interested to hear about it, like a sort of crisis in the way that I think a lot of young actors have of trying to decide whether this is the path or whether it's possible to even make a living in this path? Well, you know, I wonder about that because now I see, right, I mentioned to you, I have a 23-year-old and a 20-year-old. And and then also I have years of teaching, right? I've been teaching, I'm on leave from my teaching responsibilities now as I run Hartford Stage. But prior to my taking over Hartford Stage, I, I taught directors for over 20 years. So I've seen my students go through all of this, right? Really gifted folks. I think I learned early on that I didn't need a lot of money to live on. I lived very cheaply. I didn't have a lot. It, I was lucky in that my day jobs by and large were at theaters. I think my walking into the public as a, you know, interviewing for a box office job and then ending up working in an office job there and then eventually becoming a dramaturg there I mean, that was such a gift because my day job introduced me to people. Mm-hmm. So I think I was very, very lucky that way to kind of walk in. Was there despair all the friggin' time? Yeah, you know, I really didn't have a sense of how to build a career, but I did and do love to be in a rehearsal room. So I just kept directing anything and everything that people would ask me to do. I directed alumni showcases. I 
directed an evening of monologues that someone, you know, was look, I don't, you know, someone must have recommended me. I mean, I just, every hole in the wall in New York I was at, and most of these things did not pay, right? The idea was just, I'm meeting people, I'm directing. And my day jobs were, my day job basically was at the public for many years until Joe Pep fired me. <laughs> he really? fired me. He did. In it as a dramaturg. It was an incredibly generous act on his part. He <laughs> and I I yeah, I um I was working for Gail Pap, right? Uh Joe Pap's wife was the literary manager of the theater and I was her assistant and I was directing in the evenings. I mean I was leading a life like you all all of that this has not changed, right? The hours no, that everybody this is all leads. sounding very familiar to me. <laughs> right. So I'd have my day job from nine to five or nine to six or nine to seven. And then I'd rehearse one thing from eight to eleven. And then sometimes rehearse another thing from eleven to one. You know what I, I mean? It, it, I do remember at one point we scheduled a rehearsal in my living room from like midnight to two because that was the only time we could all gather. Mm -hmm. That seems really stupid in retrospect, but I do remember doing that. And I was producing my own shows with my partner, uh, my dramaturg, Vicki Abrash. We started a sort of, you know, we would adapt pieces together and I would direct and she would dramaturg and we produced them at what was then Home for Contemporary Theater and art, I think home became here, but before it was here, it was home. <laughs> oh, your, your arts. Is that what it is? Your, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Huh. Yep. So it was home arts? Yeah, whatever it was, right? And we would produce stuff. And I remember, you know, finishing rehearsal, painting the floor, right, for the show, hmm. and then going and typing the program. And, you know, so it'd be ready to drop off at Kinko's or whatever at eight in the morning right so we'd have the programs for that evening and just not sleeping I mean that's so that part wasn't different I I think the fact that I could afford to rent a room in an apartment on 111th street so I was always in the city and the fact that my day job was at the public that I think those things were were really helpful yeah in giving me a sense that I would eventually make a life doing this, but it does take years. I mean, I didn't call myself a director for years because I couldn't make any money at it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So the firing story is. Yeah. That, I got uh, that. <laughs> yeah so um, I think I was probably calling in sick an awful lot because, you know, tech would be daytime. <laughs> I was probably a much worse liar than I thought I was. <laughs> And so the paps took me out to dinner and he fired me so that I could get unemployment. But I, I burst into tears at dinner. I mean, that was home for me. And he said, no, no, this is the right thing. It's time for you to do your directing. Wow. And uh, I remember they kept me on health insurance for a few extra months. They were very generous to me. So they kept me on health insurance and I started Oh, any number of freelance jobs. I did. I translated for for courts and queens if people wanted translators for hearings and so forth. So yeah. I, my phone would ring again. No internet. My phone would ring at five thirty in the morning, saying that it's seven or at seven thirty. I had to be at this courthouse in Queens, and you know, I I, I did the Lincoln Center teaching artists uh, thing, which I think still exists. Yeah, yeah, the, so, yeah. I loved that. I'm a good typist, so I would type things for people. Oh, it was crazy. I mean, you name it. I was trying to figure out how to make money doing it. So I think you don't escape those years. That I had a certainty that this 
was what I was going to do, I think really had more to do with the fact that I'd never done anything else and there was nothing else I could really imagine myself doing. So it, it really is kind of that, that old, that cliche, which is true of if you can think of doing anything else, do it. I really couldn't think of doing anything else. And I loved living in New York City those years. So that sustained me a lot, was just being in the city around theater people. I, I, I would get a kick out of just dropping in on other people's work. So that was helpful. Did you ever have thoughts or ideas of yourself running a theater or being an artistic director? It was my fantasy, I have really? to admit. Yeah, it really was. Once I started to realize what these jobs entailed, when I was starting out, I didn't really understand it. But as I started to work at, my first regional theater gig was at a theater that no longer exists. Uh, it was called New Mexico Repertory Theater. It was in Santa Fe, mm -hmm. and it was in Santa Fe and Albuquerque. And a wonderful play playwright, Eduardo Machado, a Cuban-American playwright, Eduardo, who used to teach playwriting at Columbia. Eduardo had his play produced there and he hired me to direct it, right? So once again, it's all friends and relationships and, and people trusting me. But I remember starting out, you know, that was my first regional gig and having this feeling of, wow, this is really interesting. I mean, I'd assisted at Hartford Stage, but being an assistant, I didn't quite have an understanding of how that theater worked. Mark Lemos, uh, who was artistic director of Hartford Stage at the time, was actually in the production of Doll's House. He played Dr. Ronk brilliantly, I have to add. He's an amazing actor. So I didn't have that same sense of understanding what the job was until I started directing at these theaters. And it, it did seem, I mean, I thought, yeah, I would love to do this. I love watching other people work and I really like supporting other artists. So it had been a dream and it was one that I actually came pretty close to fulfilling about 20 years ago because at that point I had been directing all over the country. I knew artistic directors and I started getting headhunted for these positions. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was actually offered a theater to be an artistic director of, but my son was very young and I had just started teaching and my husband is a research scientist. And so he had started on a new research project and he basically said, this is not a good time for me to move. And I thought, well, I'm happy. I had fallen in love with teaching, so it wasn't like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I discovered sort of that this was a great thing to do while also directing and having kids. So I passed on a theater and until Hartford stage came calling, I, I will tell you, I thought, well, you know, that ship has sailed. I won't run a theater and that's okay. I've loved teaching. I loved raising my kids. I'm grateful that I have a freelance directing career, but all to say that you never know what's going to come back around. <laughs> you know, I started teaching when my son was born. I was offered a teaching job kind of out of the blue, uh, again, through someone recommending me at uh, SMU in Dallas. And I had a newborn and Mary Robinson appears in my life again and says, I asked her for her advice. She was running the Philadelphia Drama Guild at the time and I had directed for her there. And I said, I've been offered in this teaching job in Dallas of all places. And she said, look, with a new baby, it doesn't matter where you are and you'll have the adventure of discovering what you think about teaching. 
It was great advice. I went to Dallas thinking I would teach at SMU for one year. We ended up staying there for four years. And those four years of teaching in Dallas, um, that's also where my daughter was born. And I did a lot of freelancing. Dallas has a great airport, so not, it's not a small thing to be so centrally located. Yeah. But I got to direct all over the country and, uh, and teach at a great school. We moved to Boston from Dallas because yes. of my husband's work. But at the same time, I saw a position at Emerson College announced in ArtSearch, advertised in ArtSearch, and was lucky enough to get that job of teaching directing at Emerson. So that was my home. That was my professional home. I became department chair and ran that program for over a decade, which was incredibly satisfying and not unlike running a theater. Mm -hmm. But I learned so much from these years of teaching and having amazing students come through both the SMU and the Emerson program that I was really very grateful for all that experience. Do you feel like you get a, a that teaching is performance a little bit? Oh, completely. I think it's a great question. And I think, you know, um, as a theater director teaching for the first time, I felt like I had such an advantage because <laughs> I run a room, right? That's what we do. We're, we're sort of instructing. Every production is a syllabus. So it felt very natural to teach in the way that it had felt natural to direct. Mm -hmm. I do think teaching is completely performative. And I think that can be a trap, right? Because <laughs> the key to teaching, it seems to me, especially in these crafts that are about accessing everyone's individual point of view, is that if you're too much of the performer and you don't make room for the students, mm. you're not a successful teacher. I just got, you know, being department chair, I was able to watch a lot of different people teach and, and see who can sort of park themselves to the side and allow the student to access the art form, you know, through them, maybe through the faculty member, but not, not with that lens as their only perspective. It doesn't really make sense. It's sort of a visual that I'm trying to do here of like how you have to, you have to, you have to make a triangle of the student, the art form and yourself, the craft more than the art, I would say. It's, it's craft that you need to teach. And so you're sort of in this triangle relationship as opposed to I am the master and you must learn only from me, you know, which I think can be a real trap in any kind of teaching, but specifically in the performing arts where we are performative. Interesting. Yeah, the reason I asked is just because you started as a performer, as most of us do, getting into the theater. Right. And, actor. and I think it's interesting what kind of people get back to it in some capacity or what kind of people like, oh, really, that wasn't it. That wasn't yeah, it. Yeah, I should yeah. Be yeah, yeah. Director or I should play rehearsal piano, you know, but most of right. us are doing those acting things, doing the yeah, it, it stays a part of it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think you're quite right. Okay, so the middle the middle phase you're you're in Boston and yeah. uh, Emerson. Uh, are you directing mostly in Boston or still going? You know, I directed all over the country for a while, and then and then I think you know one has to be realistic about that life entails compromises, and that you sort of can have everything but not at the same time. School of thought. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing a lot of work on the road, if you will, and then my kids hit. I remember my son was in sixth grade and my daughter was in third grade and my being on the road just seemed un to be an undue hardship on all of us. 
to be perfectly honest, it wasn't until I missed being home that I could talk myself into <laughs> shifting gears. I, that makes total sense to you. Right? I mean, it's funny. People would go, what about the kids? What about the kids? And I'd be like, the kids are fine. Kids are resilient. Uh, I'm not going to give, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll compromise to some degree for the kids, but I wasn't going to give up directing. Um, I got, uh, again, here's that phrase. I guess I feel like I've been really, really lucky. Peter Dubois took over the Huntington. And through my friend, Chris Weigel, who was also at the Huntington, Chris had started with Nikki Martin. Chris introduced me to Peter. And around that time, I became department chair. And I stopped directing on the road and started doing much more in Boston. The Huntington became a, a true professional artistic home for me. So between the Huntington and Actor Shakespeare Project, which was growing in Boston at that time, I found that I actually had a, a lot of ways of feeling professionally engaged, you know, and, um, and directing at Emerson. So, you know, you shift gears, you sort of go, okay, what makes, what makes sense to my life now? I, I think it's interesting as theater people that we really understand, and, and you started this, we, we understand how to construct a story and we understand how to improvise in our work and, and change directions, right? You have to, I always say, you direct the play in the room, not the play in your head. Mm -hmm. The challenge is to have that same set of rules for your own life and how to lead your life along with those same principles of improvisation and staying open and not getting too stuck in one perspective. I had a moment of realizing that I was I had not shifted my career ambitions or my way of working. I was still viewing myself in the way I viewed myself in my 20s. And here I was, I guess, at that point, you know, I was in my mid 40s and I had two kids and I had a full time teaching job. And I was like, maybe I need to, you know, re uh, redesign, recontextualize how my directing, professional directing fits into my life. Hmm. And that was really, that, that was when I decided to become department chair and focus my directing work on Boston. Yeah. It, it sounds like you've been able to craft a good balance through these various career paths of, of getting more than one thing out of any particular. I think that's right. I mean, what I've said to students um, is that I feel like I've, until this moment, really with Hartford Stage, um, I've always had at least two jobs at a time. Yeah. Right. Because as all of us do. Right. It's the way you described your job. And it's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. There was always the there was always something that I had to do to make a living. And then there was directing mm -hmm. and the directing sometimes was what I got to do for a living. There were a couple of years when I was freelancing where I was doing so many regional shows that that really was the only thing I was doing and making a living that way. And that I couldn't believe that seemed incredibly cool to me that that I was doing that. That took a while to get to, right? I mean, you, you all through my 20s, I, it, it was the, the three-legged stool. You're, you're doing one thing for money, one thing for love, and one thing to build your career. Mm -hmm. And sometimes two of those are in the same camp, and that's great, right? If the career-building gig is something you really love as well, that just seems a gift. But, you know, I was taking stuff that I didn't, always want to 
you know, the play didn't necessarily sing to me or wasn't exactly my cup of tea or it was a showcase that I was maybe not that interested in or I was tired of doing showcases, but it was like, there's good people involved with this and I need to get to know them. So you do it. Well, I think sometimes it'll surprise you too. And I'm sure you've had this experience, but you'll go into something thinking, well, this is going to be a drag, but it'll pay the bills. And then it becomes this artistic, really fun thing. Yes. You think, oh, you're... Oh, this is my passion project. And then you get into it and it's like, well, this is not my I don't care. I know. I know. Um, it's absolutely right. I mean, this is where the improv, I mean, and I never did improv, mind you, but I steal the language. Always steal. Always yeah. steal. Yes, and. Yes, and. I mean, it's true. And and I guess I really, I I had those moments of, oh, I'm never going to get what I want. I'm never going to, you know, direct the kinds of plays I want. I'll never be in those kinds of theaters. And and that feeling can last for a while. And then something little happens that you don't expect. And you feel like, oh, all right, well, I'm making some progress. I mean, I remember, you know, um, I would send out for each production, I would do a mailing, right? You know, print postcards, whatever, and do vast mailings to people to come see the shows. And most people don't come off of those, right? But I would write to artistic directors and I remember getting a note back in the mail from an artistic director I'd written to um, saying, I can't come, but, is, but it's lovely to see how you're keeping better and better company on your productions, something mm. like that. You know, and it, he was tracking something, right? Yeah. He, had, he had tracked that, you know, the caliber of actor or designer or playwright, um, that I was slowly moving up in some kind of professional ladder, hmm. which you, 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 you don't know what steps you're hitting. Do you know? I mean, it's really interesting. You really don't know. So with being an artistic director now, though, you don't think that this is two jobs as well? I mean, you're still doing directing, right? Right. But it feels much more integrated, mm. right? And, and that's a surprise. It, but you're right. I am still doing two jobs. I mean, what's funny is we started this conversation about common ground briefly at the beginning. And of course, I still have my freelance projects that are not necessarily the right fit for Hartford stage. So you're right. It's, it's still two jobs. What is a pleasure in this new role is a, that part of my job is to invite people to do their work, which I love. And that my directing is part of my job description that just, tickles me do you know mm -hmm. because i still feel uh, uh if i do a workshop and i am not available to staff for a week i feel guilty and people go no no you're doing what you're supposed to for our theater it's good that you're in rehearsal and and you know what a privilege that is yeah, I mean, totally. it's just an extraordinary privilege to be in these positions you now get much more freeing in terms of what you get to work on i mean we didn't talk about this much with your career but how often has it been you get to decide the project that you're working on or is it you've, you've been asked to do something? Well, it's absolutely right. But here it is a double-edged sword because you're absolutely right that I get to pick what I want to do, but it has to make sense for what Hartford stage needs. Mm -hmm. So in a funny way, I, I have more freedom in some ways and less in others. Um, because I may really want to do, for example, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of Garcia Lorca's plays. Mm -hmm. And I love directing Lorca. And I'd love to go back and revisit some of the Lorca plays I've done. But that doesn't really make sense for Hartford stage right now. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that they need to get to know me and my sensibility, I think, a little more before I bring that off. And what they really want right now, let's say, hypothetically, is a comedy. So my my leaning always towards the tragic titles, I've got to curb my appetite a bit that way, right? Because mm-hmm. what I'd really like to do is, you know, Ibsen and Shaw and Lorca and a Shakespeare. Ooh, that'd be so fun. And uh-huh. it's like, you know... I've got to be conscious of what the audience wants as well. It's a, it's a dance between what I want them to know about me and the theater, what my point of view is, and also really taking into account what they need this theater to be for them as well. Could you talk me through, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, and I imagine many listeners who are theater, who are in the theater business or are or, or just interested I'm really interested in how a season gets programmed. Like what, like we, we broadly know that the artistic director would be in charge of it, but who are the players? Like what, what is the, what is the timeline like? What does that look like? Oh, you know, I think it is, it's that line from Shakespeare in Love that it's a mystery how it works, <laughs> right? Um, how does a season get planned? In our case, um, I, have, I have a couple of close artistic staff a couple of close colleagues on the artistic staff at Hartford stage. Um, And we spent the fall sort of throwing titles at each other and thinking about what kinds of things would make up a good season. You take under consideration, you take into consideration a time of year, what's going on in the, on the world stage in terms of, you know, I was very conscious in planning next season that we had an election. I mean, that's even before the pandemic that we knew the fall was going to be very stressful because of the election. So that becomes a question of what kind of work people may want to see during a stressful political moment. Historically, you find that people don't go to the theater during national elections. So you've got to really think about that. You, for me, we program six slots and Christmas Carol. That's the that's the structure I inherited. Hmm. Uh, we'll see that that's what we're sticking with for next year. The next couple of years, we'll see how much we play with that model or not. And I think Mark Lamos once said, actually talking about programming Hartford Stage, that he thought of each play not as a play but an event what are the events that he wanted to make happen for his community and i love that kind of thinking Uh, and i think of our demographics i think of all the different kinds of people we want to have in our building and who they need to see represented right and how to represent them i mean hartford is 47 percent latino latinx and so i'm very conscious of trying to bring more latinx work to the stage and to have more representation on in all aspects in our theater for that. I did sort of do a listening tour last fall of various communities in Hartford, board, subscribers, donors, local artists, all any kind of gathering I could get invited to and said, you know, what's your favorite thing you've seen in Hartford Stage? What do you look for in Hartford Stage now? So for me in programming this first season, which is next season, which of course, given this pandemic, everything I'm saying now feels out of date, okay? So I'm, I'm talking to you to, to try to capture how I felt 
like a month ago. <laughs> I was just going to say, is it three weeks, a month, two months ago? Yeah. The yeah. Life has changed so drastically. But programming's funny. Season planning is a lot like casting in that it is about a mix. So a great project comes your way and you go, damn, I really want to do that. But that's an awful lot like this other play that mm-hmm. I think we're committing to. And and so forth. And do we have this kind of voice? And do we have that kind of voice? I mean, I'm really interested in creating a season that the whole thing is in some dialogue, not only with the audience, but that each title is in dialogue in some way with the other titles. Now, that doesn't mean that it's thematically linked, but but really quite the opposite, that there's a, a, a kind of range of aesthetics, a range of writing a range of points of view that I don't want you to feel like, oh, I know exactly the kind of work I'm going to see at Hartford stage. I want you to be surprised. Mm, interesting. Looking for an element of surprise in the programming and pleasure. So and, it's like for you, it's, it's more about getting a diverse array rather than saying, this is our stamp. This is sort of. That's right. I have really thought about that. And you know, that, Part of it might be that I'm getting to know the place. So there's no question that we all have, I mean, my aesthetic is gonna be my aesthetic. And I think, especially in productions I direct, you'll definitely see a range of similarity, right? Not necessarily in subject matter, but in the style of presentation. Mm-hmm. We all have the way we were, but the notion of getting to bring in other artists and other styles really appeals to me so that there's a range of experiences at the theater. It has been important to me in planning next season, certainly. Something that I watched that was really interesting was uh, Oscar Eustace, uh, for our listeners, he's the artistic director of the public theater, um, talking about his, his view of the public as a, a forum, sort of in the classic Athenian democratic. Oh, way. I know. I love it when he talks about this I, stuff I, that I way. That stuff. And, and it makes me want to ask about Hartford if there's a sort of, a sort of thesis statement of the institution in that way, or if you're still discovering that, that's obviously um, a perfectly uh, reasonable rural response, but, or if you're looking for something like that, or if you want to keep it more open-ended. So you mean, am I looking for it to be a kind of public forum of ideas? If it's that, or if there's another uh, way you see it. I, I mean, I think, you know, that language is so true to what all theater is, um, that we are in a place where we hear a point of view and that we can hear that argued with, right? That that's what dialogue is, Mm -hmm. is having two points of view on stage and that you can empathize with all sides, that that's kind of what the great work does is give you that. If, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, I think what's so interesting is that, I mean, what is theater? That somehow theater, great theater is all about reflecting how we're getting along and how can we do that better? How can we get along better? I mean, yeah. everything from Oedipus to, to Death of a Salesman to the America play. I mean, uh, August Wilson, I mean, you, you know, Naomi Wallace, there's something about how are we getting along and how do we do that better? And the model of the actual putting on the play is a kind of ideal society, right? That uh, we're, the fact that we're all gathering in the theater to hear a story, that that communal event is happening, that in and of itself is an extraordinary metaphor for what 
the theater's trying to, whatever story on stage is trying to achieve. So I, I do think that whether it's a forum for ideas or for public discourse, it's really a place for conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that a variety of voices is crucial for a truly interesting conversation. And that the plays are in dialogue with each other, that audiences are hopefully in dialogue with the leadership of the theater, that audiences are in dialogue with each other at the theater. Uh, I envy the public theater, its lobby, and Joe's <laughs> pub, and you know, and the, and the library, right? These sort of gathering places. I would really love Hartford Stage to have much more of a sense of a place to gather and to be. Mm. That has been a lot of what I've worked on this year. And hopefully when we come out of this pandemic, we'll be able to invite people back into the building in a really festive light. So, all right, I guess we're at the, at the Corona moment. Um, You know, I felt guilty about taking your time at all during this time, but I also thought it might be interesting just to have an opportunity to get inside the head of somebody who's dealing with this position of leadership uh, within the theater community. So, um, Sounds like you're you're holding up. What's a day in the life like? Are you still you know on the Zoom calls, doing, doing all the calls all day? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I think in some ways, many of us are working harder, or it feels like we're working harder because the platform, the two dimensionality of my life, is much harder than walking into a room. I mean, I'm the person. I like walking into someone's office and going, "Let's talk about X. Mm-hmm. What about this play? Um, this notion that all conversations are now." through a screen, I'm finding exhausting. I mean, literally physically exhausting. I was talking to a couple of colleagues who are also artistic directors and we were saying how we're more tired now. I think it's probably true of all of us as as a country at large that the weariness of these phone calls and Zoom calls take its toll. That being said, what are we up to? We had a very tough few weeks. We had to furlough a lot of staff like everybody else. I do think the country underestimates the hit that the arts are going to take through this. Yeah. No matter how many pieces are written in the Times or other publications, I hear it from folks around me who are not in the arts. They, they're not really seeing what's happening to yeah. all of us. So that's terrifying. You know about seen and heard. That for me has been a lifesaver personally. It's my creative outlet now is kind of designing these conversations. Can you tell um, everybody what it is real quick? Because this will be a good place to plug. So I started uh, when I became artistic director all of a lifetime ago or seven months, depending how you count it. I started an email that we called Seen and Heard, S-C-E-N-E and Heard. In a, in a sense, it's answering what you're asking about, how does season selection happen? And I was trying to tell audiences through email why I was excited about a play, what it made me think of, right? How it related to the theater or to our lives in the community. Mm-hmm. So I had, I was doing these mailings. They were in a sense kind of linked to what a program note is, but they would come out, you know, before the play started previews. And it was a way of saying to this audience, I want to get to know you. And my way of starting that conversation is by telling you more about me, right? And when we shut down, we had the idea of making it seen and heard live. And I suggested we have a virtual cocktail hour on Zoom where we just talk all things Hartford stage. So we had the first one, this is, this is our third week tomorrow, but I was amazed. The first one, two, would that be two weeks ago or three, I guess three weeks ago, 
uh, 140 people called in Amazing. for our first one. And we read a scene from Jeff Hatcher's play, The Fabulous Invalid, which is a play about the theater and how it won't be, it won't be killed. It will continue to live through anything. And uh, Jeffrey is a dear friend and a brilliant writer. And Jeffrey uh, read one of the roles and some of our staff and board participated. And we talked about the season announcement. And then we communally, I distributed lines from um, the All's the World's a Stage speech from As You Like It, which we had just announced we were going to do next season. So it was so joyful, Wes, I can't tell you. I mean, it was just so fun to see everybody's face on Zoom. And then it, we ended with a toast to better days for Hartford Stage. And then the following week, April 1st, I realized was the anniversary of the first opening night at Hartford Stage in 1964. And so I invited Michael Wilson and Mark Lemos and Darko Tresnak to all join me. And 250 people joined us oh last Wednesday. And we had surprise guests like Richard Thomas and Mary Beth Peel. Gordana Rashevich, um, Emilio Delgado, all folks who've worked at Hartford joined in for uh, as Zoom guests. And we talked about the history of Hartford stage and ended with a communal reading of a poem. Um, started with a monologue from, a, a Shakespeare monologue from a favorite production of Marx, Cymbeline. So tomorrow I'm hosting Martin Zimmerman, who, Martin, forgive me, Martin Zimmerman, who is one of the writers and editors of Ozark. And his new play is part of our season next year, Simona's Search. So Martin is going to be joining me for a conversation about his play. And we have a, a number of special surprise guests that will be joining us. But this will be every Wednesday, 5 to 6. The info is on the Hartford Stage webpage. And it's been a way to talk all things theater, to really stay connected with the history and future of Hartford Stage, and to just feel the immediacy of conversation. That is one of the things that, you know, I most love about the theater. If you enjoyed this interview, check out some of our other episodes. If you're a pet lover, I'd recommend the one with Bill Berloni, Broadway's go-to animal trainer. Or if you're interested in sound design and music, Dan Moses Schreier is one of Broadway's top sound designers and a frequent collaborator of Stephen Sondheim's. Until next time, thanks for listening to Talk to the Hound.